The Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. If you want to support groups committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise with your charitable giving, you should learn how Donors Trust can simplify your giving. Go to donorstrust.org/standard to get your free investing in liberty guide. Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. I'm joined today by Andrew Studdiford, a contributor to the Weekly Standard, among many other publications. And Andrew, welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's great to be here. So you're in town here in Washington this week for a presentation on Capitol Hill uh, regarding the 85th anniversary of the Holodomor. Uh, what is the Holodomor? Well, the Holodomor is uh, it's a it's it's a, it's a made up word really, and but it describes a, a very real event, which is the Ukrainian uh, famine of 1932 to 1933, and it comes from two words, and the rough derivation means extermination by hunger. In other words, famine though it was, it wasn't a naturally occurring one. No, it was it was a man-made fa- famine. It was uh, deliberate. And uh, why so much attention is focused on it is firstly that it was allowed to be forgotten or forced to be forgotten for many years. Um, but secondly, people wanted to, to understand what was it that, what, that produced this mass murder. There's no other word. Well, what was it? What was it was an attempt to really break the spirit of Ukraine. Uh, when um, the Bolsheviks took over uh, 100 years ago uh, this week, uh, they had a lot of problems in their early years with Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine uh, sort of really wanted to go its own way. And when the Bolsheviks eventually got control of Ukraine, which was finally sort of a couple of years later, they didn't want to let it go. They didn't want to let it go for a number of reasons. One was uh, it was the breadbasket of the Russian Empire, now the Soviet Empire. They needed its resources uh, geographically. Uh, they were worried about if Ukraine was to go its own way, uh, then um, they might be more vulnerable to external aggression. And, you know, Moscow is Moscow. It had run it had run this part of the world for a long time and intended to continue doing so. So they um, initially began fairly softly in, in Ukraine. Uh, the early years of Soviet rule by the dismal standards of the St- Soviets were relatively laissez-faire. I underline that relatively. But Stalin, in particular, when he took over, uh, was was always going to try and sort this out. And basically, he one of the, what he saw, and Stalin understood the nationality question very well. He was his, one of his early jobs in the Soviet government, if not his first, uh, was his, he was commissar of nationalities. And he basically said, that the essence of the nation, and it was very clear he was speaking about Ukraine, is the peasantry. And so what you saw was in the years that fo- in, in, in the years really after he said that, which was 1925, uh, is, is, was an attack on the, the peasantry. Now, what people argued is, well, this is what the Soviets were doing all over the former Russian Empire. They were basically collectivizing agriculture, that proved enormously distract, just destructive. Uh, there were 
famines uh, or problems uh, all over the, the Soviet Union, how can you say that Ukraine was singled out? But Ukraine, you argue, was not a side effect of collectivization. No, I mean, what, what I think what they did, I mean, the Bolsheviks, as we know, uh, pursued economic experiments regardless of cost, basically. They were, the, the, people were just collateral damage to them. But in this case, uh, collectivization was something ideologically they wanted. They wanted uh, more efficient and larger farms as they saw it. But at the, they also realized that this could be a way to break the spirit of the independent Ukrainian peasantry. The Ukrainian peasants, much more than their Russian counterparts, for example, had had, had much more private land. They were in the way ideologically and they were in the, in the way nationally. And what Stalin understood is that they were, in some sense, the repository of uh, Ukrainian culture, its soul, if you want to put it that way, and they had to be ground down. And how was it done? Well, how it was done is uh, was was really, uh, I mean, you know, words almost almost fail one, but basically, collectivization happened uh, all over the USSR, and uh, th that resulted in enormous disruption to agriculture. Uh, that you'll find everywhere. What was different in Ukraine, what, which was, remember, historically had been the breadbasket, is that they insisted on, they put unrealistic grain targets. The agricultural sector was uh, hurting. It was not efficient. But nevertheless, they imposed very strict uh, grain targets. You have to produce this. And if you failed to produce, if your village or your collective farm uh, or your area failed to produce, they would just come and take all the grain. And they didn't just stop with taking the grain. Uh, they would take the livestock. They would take the vegetables you were growing. And in the, by the end, they were taking the food that people uh, stored in their houses and, for that matter, the cooking utensils that went with them. The noose tightened over, over uh, a period. And particularly if you were a so-called uh, blacklisted uh, village or area or region uh, who was felt to have been particularly bad about supplying Moscow with the grain that it needed, well, then you were you were told that you couldn't uh, you couldn't trade, you couldn't barter, uh, you really were cut off from the outside world, um, and. Uh, uh, and Applebaum, in, in, in her excellent book, Red Famine, uh, draws a comparison with the position of, of Jews cut off in the ghetto by the Nazis. And it's not an entirely inaccurate uh, comparison. What they also did was they sealed the borders. Uh, it, was, it was very, very difficult to get from uh, Ukraine to uh, the Russian Republic next door. And uh, it was also very increasingly difficult to get from the Ukrainian countryside into Ukrainian cities. And a lot of people, a lot of peasants just tried desperately to get, at least at the towns. The towns themselves were fairly hungry and couldn't help. And if they were found in the towns, they were rounded up and sent home to their starving villages. What is also, if you look at the plight of the peasantry, two other things to note, I think, are that uh, the few travelers that were around at the time noticed big differences between what was happening in the Ukrainian countryside and what was happening in the Russian countryside just across the border, and which suggests that something very specifically was going on um, directed uh, at Ukraine. This was punitive, and it was essentially designed to kill. Was it a genocide? 
Was it a genocide? Here, yes, in my view, um, without question. Uh, one has to take a step back. Uh, what we've done, is, you and I just now, we've talked about the, the peasantry, but it has to be seen as the attack on the peasantry was just one part of what went on. So if you like, uh, the peasantry, uh, as I said, were the, the soul of the nation, but they also had to decapitate the nation. And this was to become as a Soviet model uh, in, in, in later years. You saw it, for example, uh, in, at Katyn, uh, when all the Polish officer or a large chunk of Polish officer corps was killed. What they were doing there was social engineering. And so what, at the same time as you had the attack on the peasantry, or more or less at the same time, you also had the attack on the intelligentsia. There had been something of a resurgence of Ukrainian culture after 1918. And that was cracked down on. Lots of people were arrested, deported, shot, the usual Soviet treatment. They also purged the political class because the Ukrainian Communist Party, by no means what I would consider a respectable organization, nevertheless had elements of independent thinking within it. And that, too, was ruthlessly purged. So you attacked the soul and you attacked the head. Now, that's beginning to look a lot like genocide. If we look at the legal definition of genocide, uh, which was very much, of course, was shaped by two things. One was the, the experience of the Holocaust, and the second was the fact that the Soviets were involved in drafting the legislation in the immediate post-war period, and this is the uh, Genocide Convention. What people thought of as genocide, if you like, in some way was, was rather literalistic, and it was the Nazi model. You try and find everyone from the, 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 the hated ethnic group, and you try to kill them. Now, that didn't happen in... And that is, that is the, essentially the legal definition, um, arguably, uh, which still exists today of genocide. There is some controversy about this, because the Soviets wanted to keep that definition as narrow as they possibly could, because they knew that they had been guilty of any number of mass killings of different types, whether whether uh, nationally based or uh, class based, and they didn't want people looking in that direction. So um, they all they all you know have always maintained and still maintain the Russians that it wasn't genocide. The man who developed the term genocide, who invented, who coined it, was a man called Raphael uh, Lemkin. And he said that the Ukrainian, the Holodomor, and everything that went with it was indeed genocide, because what it was designed to do was, even if it wasn't designed to hunt down every Ukrainian, and it certainly was not, what it was designed to do was to break their sense of national identity, uh, to kill people because of their national identity, to destroy a culture, to dismantle a language, just to pull it apart. And that, he felt, was genocide. And to me, that strikes me as a very fair definition of that term. Does the memory of the Holodomor have anything to tell us about the current uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia? Yes, I think it does. And uh, and just by the way, we should we should give a number for the Holodomor, which has been uh, debated for some years. The, the latest uh, numbers, and again, you'll, you'll, you'll see it in Red, Red Famine, uh, are around 4 million dead. Uh, it's a, a really terrible toll. Um, and the 4 million dead matter for any number of reasons. But one of the reasons that, that they matter is because this was fertile land. It had to be filled with someone. 
And so what happened was the sometimes literally the empty villages were filled with Russian settlers, and a lot of them are, are around the Donbass. So when you read about Russian-speaking or Russian Eastern Ukraine, um, there, there's certainly a degree of truth in it. But you have to remember that the the balance between Russians and Ukrainians, and that's sometimes a blurrier distinction that people like to admit, but the, the, the balance was shifted dramatically by the Holodomor. And one of the things that gives, I think he has no case, but one of the cases, that one of the arguments that Putin makes is that, well, he's gone into eastern Ukraine to help his compatriots there, as he calls them. Well, the reason that so many of his compatriots are there partly is to fill the gap left by the genocide of the people who'd been living there before. Andrew Stutterford, thank you so much for joining us on the Daily Standard podcast. Thank you. Support for the Daily Standard podcast comes from Donors Trust. It's no secret that the best policy ideas are not coming from politicians. Instead, they're coming from the think tanks, public interest law centers, and other principled individuals and groups from around the country. And the best ones are those that don't rely on government money to operate. If you want to help move the ideas of liberty forward, invest your charitable giving in those doing the real work of conservative causes. And the simplest way to do this is through Donors Trust. Donors Trust is the community foundation for the liberty movement. With a donor-advised fund at Donors Trust, you'll simplify your giving and receive excellent tax benefits, all in a way that gives you an additional layer of privacy. All donor-advised funds offer the same basic services, but Donors Trust is the only donor-advised fund that shares your commitment to conservative principles. Go to DonorsTrust.org standard for your free Investing in Liberty guide that gives you practical advice on how to identify principle-driven charities that deserve your support. As we near the end of 2017, Donors Trust is the partner you need. The stock market is booming and the tax code is changing. Donors Trust experts can help you navigate all of this and equip you to give in a way that best benefits you, your family, and the principles you hold dear. Visit DonorsTrust.org standard right now to download a free copy of your helpful guide, Discover a Better Way to Support the Conservative Values You Believe in. That's DonorsTrust.org standard.